We, we started last uh, year, late last year, working through the book of Matthew together. We made it to Matthew 13 about a month ago, and we paused there. We fast-forwarded now. We're trying to get to Matthew chapter 24, and uh, to get there requires a little bit of work. We're talking about the end times, according to Jesus. And I told you last week that we would talk about the rapture today, Lord willing, if we were still here, and we are still here. Uh, but before I can really jump too much into the rapture, I need to take some time today to explain to you where I'm coming from. Others come at this differently, and I understand that, and I respect that. But, but I'm coming at this in a position that I want you to understand where I'm coming from. So I need you to know why I think that the rapture could happen at any moment. We're not waiting on any other prophecies to be fulfilled for Jesus to come back for his church. I want you to know why I believe that after the rapture, there will be a seven-year, literal seven-year span of time where God turns his attention back to Israel, and why I believe that after those seven years, Jesus is going to physically come again to this world and rule and reign on the throne of David for a thousand years. Now, this puts me with a label, and I don't really like labels, but people would say that makes you a dispensational, pre-meal, pre-trib kind of guy, maybe so if that's what you want to call me, and there's plenty of people who love Jesus and follow the Lord wholeheartedly who see eschatology, that's the fancy word for the study of the end times, they, they see it differently, and I appreciate that, there's post-meals, and there's ah-meals, and there's historic uh, premillennials and there's pre-tribbers and mid-tribbers and post-tribbers all over the place in that. And, and so wherever you may be today, I just want you to know that as long as you love the Lord Jesus, you know who he is according to the Bible, you know what he's done according to the Bible, and you know he's coming again according to the Bible, we're on the same team. But before I get to Matthew 24 and 25, I just think it's important that you understand the lenses through which I'm looking at that. Whether you line up exactly like that or not, that's okay. I believe that Matthew 24 and 25 are describing the things that are going to take place when Jesus raptures his church out of the world and is describing the things that will take place before he comes again to this earth to rule and reign for a thousand years. So I believe the sequence of events is something like this. Jesus comes for his church in rapture at any moment. There'll be seven years after that that God turns his attention back toward Israel. That's commonly known as the seven years of tribulation. And at the end of those seven years, I believe Jesus will physically come again into this world. We call that the second coming. The rapture and the second coming are not the same thing, all right? I believe those things are, are spread out by at least seven years. But after those seven Seven years, Jesus will come again. That will be his second coming, and he will fulfill the promises he's made to Abraham and to David, and he will rule and reign physically on this earth for a thousand years. And when that is over, then he will make a new heaven and a new earth where you and I get to live with him forever, right? Amen. So listen, when we finally get to Matthew 24 and 25, that's how I'm going to be approaching it. It's mainly about those seven years that are going to happen on this earth after the church is raptured, prior to the coming again of Jesus to establish his 1,000-year reign. Listen, if you're a convinced amillennial, God bless you. If you're a convinced postmillennial, God bless you. I'm not here today to try to convert anybody into to the views that I have. This is just where I'm coming from. And some of you are like, hey, I don't know. Some of you are pan meals. You're like, it'll all pan out, Pastor. I'm not really sure how it's gonna go, but it's, it's all gonna pan out, and it, and it will. 
But listen, this is important to talk about. I don't think it's a primary issue for us, and I don't think we ought to be dogmatic about it, but I do think God is honored when brothers and sisters gather around the word of God seeking to understand the truth of God's word. And whether or not we end up in the same place with all the details, I don't think is very consequential. I think God is honored by our interest in him and in his word and what he's doing in this world. So let's at least start today at the threshold of Matthew 24 and 25. And let me give you kind of the setting for what's happening here. Uh, Those two chapters are a private sermon. Unlike the public sermon that Jesus gave called uh, the Sermon on the Mount that we looked at earlier this year, this is called the Olivet Discourse. That's traditionally what it's been called because he's given this sermon on the Mount of Olives. But it's a private sermon because there's only four people there to hear it. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and he's delivering this message to those four disciples just three days before he goes to the cross and lays his life down for us. The sermon that Jesus gives in Matthew 24 and 25 is a response to the question the disciples ask Jesus in chapter 24, verse three. See this, verse three, chapter 24. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Well, why did they they ask that question? Well, let's try to set some context around this. They're asking Jesus that question on Tuesday of the final week of his earthly ministry here. A few days earlier, on Sunday, he had ridden into Jerusalem on a... Donkey, very good. I knew y'all'd come ready today. Y'all got a little, y'all got a little slap in the face from the pastor there at the service last week. So y'all were doing some Bible study this week. Came ready. He rode into Jerusalem on that Sunday. We call it Palm Sunday on a donkey. And you know what? That wasn't just happenstance. That was fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Zechariah, 500 years before Jesus was born, he wrote these words, Zechariah 9.12. If you wanna write that down, Zechariah 9.12. He said, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. How's he coming? Righteous and having salvation is he, but humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So what's happening on this Palm Sunday is Jesus in fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy is presenting himself to Israel as their long-awaited king, the king that Zechariah had prophesied, other prophets had prophesied about. And some on that Sunday, they genuinely welcomed him as Messiah, as king, but they were in the minority. The great majority of the people only laid down palm branches and cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna. They only did that in a surface sort of way, a superficial sort of way. In fact, the leaders of Israel had already for some time been plotting to kill Jesus. We bumped into that back in Matthew chapter 12. They were irate because Jesus was healing people on the Sabbath. And in chapter 12, I think maybe in verse 43, the Bible says that they went out to plot how they might destroy Jesus. So, by the way, the Sabbath seems to be at the center of so many things that we're bumping into in the Gospel of Matthew, so kind of hone in on that. So Sunday of Passover week, Jesus presents himself 
on the back of a donkey to Israel in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy that he is their long-awaited for king. Now, by the way, this Sunday before Passover, every year for the Jewish people was a big deal. Because Sunday before Passover, of Passover week, that Sunday would be the day that you would take your lamb that would be sacrificed in the temple for your family, for the sins of your family, and you would present your lamb before the priest to see if it would be acceptable. And it was on that day that Jesus, the Lamb of God, on presentation day, presented himself to Israel the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, but they did not accept him. They did not receive him as the Lamb of God, as John the Baptist has said. They, they wanted a king, but they didn't want a king that had come to save them from sin. That wasn't where their interest was. They wanted a king that would save them from Rome. And so they rejected Jesus. Then Jesus goes into the temple complex. After having just ridden in on that donkey, he goes in to the temple complex, and this is what happens. Matthew 21, all right? He so said, why are we in Matthew 21? Because we're getting to Matthew 24 one day. Matthew 21, verse 12, says, and Jesus entered the temple and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And watch this. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priest, the scribes, they saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. This is our Messiah. This is our king, the leaders of Israel were indignant. On Monday, the next day, he goes back into the temple, and this is how the leaders of Israel welcome him. Watch this, Matthew 21, 23. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority. They're indignant, they're irate, they want him dead. He remains in the temple complex, engaging the leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees the rest of the day, but he's engaging them through parables. He's engaging them in a way now that the hardness of their hearts has rendered them incapable of hearing the truth. It's rendered them now incapable of understanding and receiving the truth. They've hardened their hearts against God. And at the heart of all that Jesus is saying to Israel's leaders on this day, on Monday of the last day of his life, in Matthew 21, verse 42, at the heart of that, listen, Matthew 21, 42, Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, watch this, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. Did you hear that? The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. In other words, Jesus looks at Israel and he says to them on this day, because you don't want me as your king, I'll be king to other people instead. In chapter 22, Jesus continues to engage the religious leaders in this dialogue until we get to chapter 23. And chapter 23 is when Jesus finally, decisively denounces Israel, in particular Israel's leadership. And I wish I could read all of chapter 23 to you because it is good. Jesus rips them limb from limb He's done 
with their rebellion. He's done with their sin. He's done with their arrogance and with their obstinance. And he unloads in Matthew chapter 23. It is woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. And then Jesus says this. When you get to verse 37 of chapter 23, watch this. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, and you can hear his heart. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. You have rejected my kindness, my mercy, my salvation, my protection. And see, your house is left to you desolate. This is Jesus saying, now I'm walking away. It's as if he's knocking the dust off of his sandals now. And he says, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, watch this, you will not see me again. But there's a comma there. Do you notice that? There's a comma, not a period. He says, you will not see me again, comma, until... Until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What's he talking about? He's talking about a future day when the Jewish people will recognize Jesus is our king. Jesus is our promised Messiah. By the way, that hasn't happened yet. That still hasn't happened. Israel and her leaders have yet to acknowledge that Jesus is the one they've been looking for. They've yet to acknowledge that he is their Messiah, that he is their king. Some Jewish people certainly have trusted Christ. They, they know him. They're followers of Christ now. But the vast majority, we're told today in Israel, only 2% of the Jewish people there have trusted their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. But the day's coming that, that on more of a, a sense of a whole picture of the people there, that they will recognize that Jesus is who the Bible says he is. I believe that day's coming soon. Jesus clearly said there in 2339 that they would recognize him. And he said they would do that the next time that they see him. Which means two things. There's gonna be a next time that he's seen in this world. And two, it means there will be inhabitants of Jerusalem, Jewish inhabitants of Jerusalem, who see him the next time that he is seen. Now I want us to look again at what Jesus was saying here in the middle of 2143. Look at this, he said, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. For centuries, Israel had been the carriers of God's word, right? They had the law, they had the prophets. For centuries, Israel had been entrusted to be the carriers of God's truth, the upholders of God's ways. But Jesus is telling them, now all that's about to change. He's taken the kingdom away from Israel here in Matthew chapter 23, and he's giving it to other people until the day comes that Israel will see Jesus again, and then they'll know that he is their king. Paul tells us in Romans 11 that the taking of the kingdom away from Israel wasn't permanent. That's why there was a comma there, not a period, when Jesus spoke. 
The taking of the kingdom away from Israel was only temporary. Listen to what Paul says, Romans eleven twenty five. 25. He says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. Mystery is a word that Paul uses oftentimes when he's talking about the church, the New Testament church. He says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel, notice, comma, not period, this is temporary. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until, same word Jesus used in Matthew 23, he says, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Paul uses that phrase like he uses the word mystery. He's using both of those to describe the church. Paul refers to this mystery and the Gentiles again when we get to, uh, sorry, Ephesians chapter three. Look at Ephesians three. Verse one, Paul says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ, Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. These are the people that Jesus said, hey, I'm taking the kingdom away for a time from Israel. I'm giving it to other people. Paul refers to himself in Romans chapter 11, by the way, as the apostle to the Gentiles. These are the people now that the gospel's been entrusted to, the word of God has been entrusted to, non-Jewish people. That's probably most of us in this room today. So Paul says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ, Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace. Some of your translations and place the word stewardship say dispensation, the stewardship or dispensation of God's grace that was given to me for you. Paul says, I'm apostle to the Gentiles. You were a mystery. They didn't see this coming. The Old Testament prophets, they didn't see you coming in the story, but God saw you coming in this story until the fullness of the Gentiles has happened, Paul says. So he says, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery, what is mystery? It's the church, very good class. It's the mystery. I love y'all again. I like almost last week questioned our relationship, but I'm back in today, all right? I love y'all. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation. In other words, Paul says, God revealed this to me. God called me to take the kingdom to the Gentiles. God called me to this, as I have written briefly. When you read this, verse four, he says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. We could say the church of Christ, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. For example, like Daniel. You'll see this later today. God will lay out a timeline of future events for Daniel, but in that timeline, there's a gap there in the time. And Daniel doesn't know what that's for. He doesn't understand that. Paul says this wasn't made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Verse six, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. You ought to rejoice if you're a Gentile today, and that's 99.99% of you in this room, if not 100%. He says that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. We're in the story. We're in the kingdom. We're in the plan of God. This is what Jesus said as he denounced Israel's leaders in Matthew 23. I'm taking this away from you for now. I'm giving it to somebody else. We're the somebody else 
who get in the story. So Matthew 21 through 23, Jesus is announcing to Israel that they're being set aside for a time. And Paul is explaining that, that the kingdom and the carrying forth of God's word, the carrying forth of God's truth has been now entrusted primarily to us Gentiles. Who's that referring to? It's referring to the same thing that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, a few chapters earlier. And by the way, Matthew is the only gospel writer that uses this word. But in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus said, I will build my church. I will build my church. He didn't say, I've built it. He said, I will build it. It was still yet out there in the future. When Jesus said that, his church didn't exist yet. His church hadn't been born yet, and his church wouldn't be born until the kingdom was taken away temporarily from Israel. Jesus dies on the cross, rises again, ascends into heaven, and then sends his Holy Spirit, which is the beginning of the church. In fact, just to help you kind of put all of the flow of Matthew together, let's just put that up on the screen so you can sort of see the flow of Matthew. This maybe helps you understand what I'm saying. Matthew 21, Jesus rides into Jerusalem. 21 to 23, you see Jesus setting Israel aside. Woe to you, woe to you. I'm leaving you desolate, he says. Matthew 24, 25, which is our destination church, we'll get there, Lord willing, is the end times according to Jesus. Matthew 26, Jesus is arrested. 27, he dies on the cross. 28, he rises from the dead. Acts 1, he says, wait on the Holy Spirit. Acts 2, the Holy Spirit comes. And the church is born. And soon the church began to spread all over the world to the Gentiles. You know, it it spread first to Africa and then to Europe and beyond. And here you and I sit here today. And according to what Paul says in Romans, what we're a part of today called the mystery The time of the Gentiles, it has an end point in God's plan. According to what Paul says in Romans, when the time of the Gentiles is finished, God will turn his attention once again back to Israel. Remember, there's a comma in what he said, not a a period. He's not finished. But the time of the Gentiles or the time of the church, that's us, our time, that has to be finished first until the time of the Gentiles is finished. Completed, he said. That's what Paul said in Romans 11. Lest you, verse 25, Romans 11, 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel, comma, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. I believe that the fullness of the Gentiles, the mystery, the church age, I believe that began on the day of Pentecost, and I believe it's completed on the day of the rapture. Then God will once again deal with Israel. Listen, he has not, nor will he, forsake Israel. Israel, throughout their history, has forsaken him. Old Testament, modern days, listen, the nation of Israel, while politically we stand with them, spiritually we're not standing with them today. Tel Aviv, the capital of Israel, is one of the most ungodly cities in our world today. It it would stack right up there with Sodom and Gomorrah. The people who live in Israel today need Jesus. They need to hear the gospel. But I'm telling you, despite of their disobedience in the Old Testament, despite of, of their disobedience even today in the year 2023, God will not forsake 
his people. Listen to this, 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 22. It says, for the Lord will not forsake his people. I don't know how much more clear I can say it, right? It's in the Bible. The Lord will not forsake his people. Why? For his great namesake. Because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. In other words, he says, God's not gonna forsake Israel because his name's on the line. His reputation is at stake. Because God made unbreakable, unchangeable promises to them. And he will not go back on that. That would mar his character and his reputation. He bound himself. I told you this last week. He bound himself to them through the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant they made with Abraham. It was an unconditional covenant that God made. God's not finished. God is a faithful God. Maybe you don't understand anything I'm talking about today so far, but do you understand that? God is a faithful God. Psalm 89 Verse 31 says, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Watch, but I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David his offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. Psalm 94, 14 says this, for the Lord, Yahweh, will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. Paul says the same thing in the New Testament. Romans chapter 11, verse 25. Let's look at it again. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening, hardening has come upon Israel, comma, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer, capital D, we're talking about Jesus, will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. God gave Jacob another name. Does anybody know what the other name for Jacob is? Israel. He will banish ungodliness from Israel, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. In other words, the Apostle Paul is saying there's a future for Israel. It's incredible, really, when you think about the history of Israel over the last 2,000 years. It's a miracle that that tiny nation is in existence today. It's incredible when you just think about the location of that nation. It's miraculous that they have survived, but you see, there's a reason they're here. There's a reason so many other nations have come and gone, and they're off the stage of human history, but there's a reason Israel has he, is here. It's because God's faithful. He's faithful to do what he's promised to do. And listen, that's true not only for Israel, that's true for those of us in Christ. He is faithful to do what he has promised us he will do. Even Daniel, 500 years before Jesus was born, Daniel knew having been in Babylonian captivity for nearly 70 years, if anybody had a right to question, has God left me, has God abandoned me, is God unfaithful to me? If anybody had reason to question that, Daniel would have had a reason to question that after 70 years in Babylonian captivity. But he's still hanging on to the promises of God. He had been taken captivity out of Judah by the Babylonians, been in that captivity now for 70 years. Now Babylon's been overthrown by the Persians. Daniel has seen two pagan empires rise 
to power now during his captivity. In Daniel chapter 2, 7, and 8, God goes into detail with Daniel about the future of Gentile, non-Jewish kingdoms, Gentile empires. But in Daniel chapter 9, God goes into great detail about the future of Israel. In Daniel 9, this is where you got to put your uh, thinking cap on with me a minute, all right? Daniel chapter 9, Daniel tells us that he had been doing some Bible study. I love that. 70 years into captivity, he's still faithful. He still knows God's faithful. Daniel's doing some Bible study. Specifically, he's studying the book of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah had prophesied that this Babylonian captivity would only last for 70 years. Can you imagine Daniel doing that Bible study and he reads explicitly, God has already promised you're gonna be in this captivity for 70 years. Daniel's looking at his watch going, huh? Here's what Daniel was reading, Jeremiah 29. Anybody like Jeremiah 29, 11? Y'all like that verse? All right, if you don't know what it's about, you're about to find out what it's about. It's not so much about you. It can be applied to you, certainly, but it's really not about you. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a, what? A future, a future and a hope. Do you hear what God's saying to his people here? He's telling Israel, I have a future for you. I have a plan for you. Now why did God choose 70 years to allow his people to be in captivity. But to understand that, you gotta go to 2 Chronicles chapter 36. If you don't wanna turn there, just write it down so you can study your Bible this week on your own. 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 20 says, he took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. I told you that already, Babylon falls, Persia rises to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. He says, all the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. He said, that's why you're in Babylonian captivity for 70 years, so that the land could lay desolate for 70 years in order to keep the Sabbath. What does that mean? Back in the book of Leviticus, God told his people, this is how you're gonna live. Six years, you do your thing, you work. Six days you work, seventh day you rest. Six years you work, seventh year, we let the land rest. You don't work the ground. You don't plant your crops. That seventh year will be a, a Sabbath year. It'll be a year of restful worship and trust and dependency on God. You will worship him and believe and trust that this year he will be our Jehovah Jireh. He will be our provider. But the problem is the people turn from God. They deserted the Lord. They disobeyed him in many ways, including this. They did not follow his word to keep that seventh year set apart and holy 
as joyful rest and dependency on the Lord. So what 2 Chronicles is saying is that you're gonna spend 70 years in captivity to make up for the 70 Sabbath years you did not keep when you were at home in the land. So listen, if they're serving 70 years of captivity, how many Sabbath years did they not keep? 70. And a Sabbath year is at the end of six years, that's seven years. So what total span of time had they been disobedient to God in relationship to the keeping of that Sabbath year? Seven times 70 is what? 490, very good. We even have math people in the room today. 490 total years. Here's what the Bible's telling us. For 490 years, God's people had turned from God. For 490 years, the people had been disobedient in this way. They had dishonored 70 Sabbath years. For that reason, God sentenced them to 70 years of captivity in Babylon. For the 490 years, they had turned away from God. So in Daniel 9... Daniel starts adding all this up, and he starts realizing our 70 years here are almost over. We've almost fully paid now for our 490 years of disobedience to God. So with a renewed sense, as you can imagine, a renewed sense of hope and joy and expectancy, Daniel begins to look forward to going home. And he begins to pray. And I'm going to read this whole prayer because it's phenomenal. All right, I'm going to read it quickly because for the sake of time, so listen quickly. Daniel 9, verse 1, he says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, this is the Persian Empire now, has replaced Babylon, a Mede by birth who was made king over the Chaldean kingdom. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the books according to the word of the Lord to the prophet Jeremiah that the number of years for the desolation of Jerusalem would be 70. We just read that, didn't we, out of Jeremiah 29. Verse three, he says, so I turned my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and petitions with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. This is Daniel's way of saying, when I realized this, I decided I am going after God with everything I got. Prayer, petitions, fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. He says, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Ah, Lord, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant. He's praying as a Jew, right? He's still thinking about that covenant to Father Abraham who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. We have sinned, done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, and turned away from your commands and ordinances. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, Jewish prophets to Jewish people. We didn't listen who spoke in your name to our kings, our leaders, our fathers, and all the people of the The land, the land of Israel. He says, Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but this day public shame belongs to us. The men of Judah, the residents of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are near and those who are far, and all the countries where you have dispersed them because of the disloyalty that they have shown toward you. Lord, public shame belongs to us, our kings and our leaders and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Compassion and forgiveness belong to the Lord our God. Though we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by following his instructions that he set before us through his servants and prophets. Verse 11, 
all Israel. What is the focus of Daniel's prayer? It's Israel. It's the people of God. All Israel has broken your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. The promised curse written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us because we've sinned against him. He has carried out his words that he spoke against us and against our rulers by bringing on us so great a disaster that nothing like what has been done to Jerusalem has ever been done in all of heaven. What's he talking about? The Babylonians destroyed it. They destroyed the temple, destroyed the city, hauled them off into these 70 years of captivity. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not appeased the Lord our God by turning from our iniquities and paying attention to your truth. So the Lord kept this disaster in mind and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all he has done, but we have not obeyed him. This is Daniel going, I see it, God. I know what you've done in our lives over these 70 years. I know why it happened. We've been disobedient. Verse 15, now Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made your name renowned as it is this day, we have sinned. We have acted wickedly. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous act, may your anger and wrath turn away from your city. God has a city. May it turn away from your city, Jerusalem. Your holy mountain. God has a holy mountain. It's Mount Zion, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become an object of ridicule to all those around us. Therefore, our God, hear the prayer and the petitions of your servant. Show your favor to your desolate sanctuary for the Lord's sake. Listen, my God, and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city called by your name. For we are not presenting our petitions before you based on our righteous acts, but based on your abundant compassion. Lord, hear. Lord, forgive. Lord, listen and act. Can you just see Daniel in his sackcloth and ashes just calling out to God, my God, for your own sake your name is on the line you've made promises don't delay because your city and your people are called by your name this is your name God on the line even after 70 years in Babylonian captivity Daniel is full on Jew do you see that he is full on about Israel and Jerusalem and he's still in the middle of praying when he gets interrupted verse 20 while I was speaking, praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my petition before Yahweh my God concerning the holy mountain of my God. While I was praying, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the first vision, this is no man, this is the archangel of God. The man I had seen in the first vision came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. I love that. Daniel still keeps time based on what happens in the temple that's been gone for 70 years. He said it was about the time of the evening offering, the evening sacrifice. He gave me this explanation. Daniel, I've come now to give you understanding. At the beginning of your petitions, an answer went out. When you started praying, an answer was sent from heaven. And I have come to give it, for you're treasured by God. So consider the message and understand the vision. Watch this. Gabriel says to Daniel, 70 weeks are decreed. 70 weeks are decreed about what? about your people and the holy city. 70 weeks. This is another way of saying 77s. What is Gabriel talking about? He's talking about another 490 years. But he's not talking about the 490 years 
of disobedience in their past. They've almost completed paying for those 490 years with 70 years of captivity in Babylon. God's already forgiven them for those 490 years. By the way, do you remember in Matthew when Jesus gets asked, how many times are we supposed to forgive? They go, are we supposed to forgive seven times? And he says, no, you forgive 70 times seven times. What is that? 490 times. Huh. Do you see a connection? Isn't Bible study fun, class? In Daniel 9, God has already forgiven Israel for 490 years of them turning away from him in their past. The 490 years that Gabriel is talking about here are in Israel's future, not their past. Their future when they get out of Babylon. Think about that. For 490 years, They had turned away from God, but Gabriel shows up and says, now for 490 years, God's turning to you. Do you see that? It's important you see that. Prophecy, I believe, pivots on this point. 490 years, you turn from God, but for the next 490, God's turning toward you. These 490 years, according to what Gabriel says, they are specifically for who? Daniel's people. Who are Daniel's people? The Jewish people. And for the holy city. What is the holy city? These 70 weeks, these 490 years, they're for the city of Jerusalem. This is for the people of Israel and for Jerusalem. And what does he say will happen when those 490 years are over? He says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to bring the rebellion to an end, to put a stop to sin, to wipe away iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, that means to complete all of that, and to anoint the most holy place. Well, has that happened? No, none of that has happened. We wish it would, but none of that has happened yet. So explain that to us, Gabriel. So Gabriel gives us a timeline. Look at verse 25. He says, know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. By the way, you only have to look to the book of Nehemiah, the second chapter, to find when that happened. Nehemiah writes, he even gives the month and the year that the decree was issued to rebuild Babylon. So Nehemiah tells us that. He says, no one understand this, Daniel, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, that's Jesus, to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince will be seven weeks, that's seven sevens. How many years is that? 49. And 62 weeks, that's 62 sevens. I'll do it for you. That's 434. Now that's 69 weeks. Seven and 62 is 69 weeks for a total of 483 years. Anything missing? Seven years, we're missing seven years, we're missing a week. Gabriel says, it will be rebuilt with a plaza and a moat, but in difficult times. Now, notice the weeks are divided into two parts. There's seven, and then 62. What's that about? the, The seven, the 49 years, is the time it took to rebuild Jerusalem. That's what he just said. It will be rebuilt with a plaza and a moat, but in difficult times. You only need to read the book of Nehemiah to see how difficult that was. So the rebuilding of Jerusalem was the first set of seven, the first 49 years. Then comes the set of 62, which is a total of 483 years. 
At the end of those 69 weeks, or 483 years, Gabriel told Daniel, Messiah the Prince will come. When those 483 years are finished. Now listen, I don't have the time today to do all that math for you. We've done it before. We've done this in detail before, but know this, when you add it all up, from the time of giving the decree to rebuild Jerusalem until the day that Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the back of that donkey, it is exactly 483 years. Then what? Gabriel says, verse 26, after those 62 weeks, total of 69, we got the seven, we got the 62 now, after that's finished, after Messiah the Prince comes, then the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. What does that mean? It means he's gonna die. He's gonna die. Jesus, by the way, did not die during the 69 weeks. He died right after the 69. That's what Gabriel said. After those 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. He was presented as the Messiah, as the Lamb of God, as their king, as their prince on Sunday. But by Friday, they're calling for him to be crucified. The 69 weeks finished and he was cut off after that. And Daniel tells us something else happens after that 69th week. Look at this, continuing down through verse 26. The people of the coming prince will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come with a flood and until the end there will be war. Desolations are decreed. What's he talking about? He's talking about Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. And it was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. He calls them the people of the prince who is to come. That's a reference, most scholars believe, to the Antichrist. What do we know about the Antichrist? That at the very least, he's going to be Gentile because it was Gentile people, Romans specifically, that destroyed the city in 70 AD. So what do we have? We have 483 years that leads us to Palm Sunday, Jesus being rejected as their Messiah. And then there's a break in in the timeline of Gabriel. We're looking for that 70th week, right? But it's not there yet. There's seven, then there's 62, and then Jesus is cut off. He dies. And in that break, not only does he die, but Jerusalem is destroyed. Let me ask you this. Jesus dies in 33, temple's destroyed in 70. What else significant happened between Jesus dying and the temple being destroyed? Acts 2, the church was born. The mystery, the time of Gentiles, right? That comes on the scene in Acts chapter to the mystery Paul talks about. But where are those last seven years that God is supposed to turn his attention back to Israel? Gabriel gives us a clue. Verse 27, he says he, he's talking about the coming prince or the Antichrist, he will make a firm covenant with many for one week. There it is. There's the 70th week. He's been talking about weeks And here it is, for one week, the Antichrist, in other words, will enter into a covenant with nations, including Israel, for those final seven years. And that will start the clock in God's work of prophecy. Daniel goes on, Gabriel goes on, he says, he will make a firm covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, that's three and a half years, right? He'll put a stop to sacrifice and offering and the abomination of desolation will be on a wing of the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. The decreed destruction poured on the desolator is God destroying the Antichrist. But before that happens, he's gonna set himself up in the temple. He's gonna break that seven-year covenant that he's made with Israel. 
Three and a half years into it, he'll go into the temple and he'll call the world to worship him. His seven-year peace treaty will start the clock for the final seven years that God will deal with Israel. You may call that the seven years of tribulation. It's those seven years that Jesus has in mind in Matthew 24 and 25. We're gonna get there, Lord willing, one day, but that's what he's talking about. That's what, as best I can understand it, that's what we're gonna be seeing. We're gonna be seeing the things that happen after the church is gone. The time of the Gentiles is fulfilled and God turns his attention, as he said in Daniel 9, he would, back to Israel for those final seven years. And by the way, Matthew 24 and 25 parallels Revelation 6 through 19. You can study them both side by side. It's my understanding of scripture that those seven years is all about God finishing what he started with Israel. It's the final 70th week of Daniel's prophecy about Daniel's people and the city of God. After that seven years, Jesus will come. That's his second coming. Then he will come and he will physically rule and reign on this earth for a thousand years. It is as if it were a thousand Sabbath years. A thousand years where we joyfully rest in his provision. That we rest and we trust in his finished work as citizens on this earth under King Jesus. And by the way, these these are just things I only find interesting. I'm not saying this is gospel truth, I just find it interesting thousand years sounding an awful lot like Sabbath years. And I find it interesting that from Adam to Abraham, 2,000 years. From Abraham to Jesus, 2,000 years. From Jesus to us, 2,000 years. Maybe, just maybe, after 6,000 years of man being in charge and working futilely in this old world, we're due for a thousand years of Sabbath rest with Jesus as king. Maybe, just maybe, that's gonna happen. And by the way, I find it interesting also that in the context of talking about last things, Peter writes this, 2 Peter 3, 8, but beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. It's interesting to me that God may have designed seven days, six days of work, seven as worship to point us to the timeline of human history. 6,000 years of human work, 1,000 years of human worship and rest in the presence of King Jesus. I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, Pastor, you told us last week we'd talk about the rapture today. Well, I meant to. But I don't have time. I'll say it again, and I'll mean it just as much as I said it last week. Lord willing, and if we're still here next Sunday, we'll talk about that. But if nothing else today, whether you agree or disagree based on how you understand God's word, I hope you know where I'm coming from when I get to Matthew 24. I hope you understand why I put the rapture on the timeline where I put it. It has everything to do with what I understand God's word teaches about the people of Israel. I believe that God is going to deal with Israel specifically for seven more years. 
And it will happen, I believe, when Jesus has finished building his church and he calls us out of this world. I put a chart together that would just encapsulate everything I told you today. So pull out your phones. I know you're gonna do that. Thanks to Davey for doing a great job of putting this together. This is just where I land, and this is what I've told you today. And I start with Israel in the land, okay? Remember the timeline with the children? Let's just get to, they, they cross over, they get into the land, right? Joshua brings them into the land. But there were 490 years in the land. They turned from God. They didn't obey the Lord. For 70 years, they paid for that in captivity in Babylon, God reveals his future plans for Israel to Daniel in Daniel chapter nine. He speaks to him about 483 years until the coming of the Messiah. That's when Jesus rides into Jerusalem. Right after Jesus rides into Jerusalem, what does he do? He sets Israel aside. Woe to you, woe to you. You are desolate. I'm giving the kingdom to somebody else. He dies on the cross. I showed you the Matthew timeline already. He rises from the dead. He ascends into heaven. He sends his Holy Spirit. That's the Gentiles, the mystery, the church age. Began on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter two. We've been in that time for 2,000 years. I don't know how much longer it's gonna go, but I believe the rapture could happen even today. And I believe after that happens, the Antichrist will come on the scene. He'll enter into that covenant that we just read about in Daniel chapter 9. He'll break it three and a half years into that. That's Daniel's 70th week. Jeremiah, by the way, in Jeremiah 30 calls those seven years the time of Jacob's trouble. It's not the time of the church's trouble. Jacob's name is Israel. It's the time of Jacob's trouble. It's the time of Israel's trouble. When those seven years are finished, then the second coming will happen. Jesus will come to this earth, set foot on the Mount of Olives. He'll rule and reign for a thousand years. When those thousand years are complete, the history of this old world, I believe 7,000 years of it, I do believe that. We can talk about that. I do believe that. Those 7,000 years will be over. Time will be no more. He'll make a new heaven and a new earth where we live with him forever. Now, I'll say it again. Where you and I land on this and differ on that, I'm okay with that. It's not a primary issue. It's not a gospel issue. We're gonna differ on some details with really good, smart people, most of whom are smarter than I am, and I get that. But if we agree on who Jesus is and what he's done, that he's coming again, we're on the same team. All right, so if you're in a different camp in this room, just know that about your pastor. I will fight you and I will die over the gospel. I will not fight you and die over my eschatology. I just won't. I can definitively tell you two things this morning. Your Bible is perfect. Your pastor is not. You didn't have to amen the second part, Craig. (laughs) Craig finally decided to listen for a minute and threw in an amen. I will, and I'm quite sure that I do often get some things wrong, but I want you to know your Bible never has. And your Bible never will. Love your pastor, please, but do not hang on to my every word. Hang on to every word of God's word. I think, 
I think I'm right on what I've shown you today, but I hold that real loosely. But let me tell you today what I do not hold loosely. The faithfulness of God. If nothing else, I think we can agree that God has been just as faithful to the people that we know as Israel that God has said he would be faithful to them. And the good news for me and for you is because of Jesus, we've been grafted in to the faithfulness of God. We've been grafted in to the family of God. And he is and he will be just that faithful to me and to you today. And maybe today you're here and you're seeing all this stuff and you're thinking that's all fine and well, but I am in the middle of something, Pastor, right now that's hard. And and I don't feel like God is close to me right now. And I'm telling you today, he is. If you feel today that God is not as close to you as he once was, I assure you, he's not the one that's moved. You may have, but he has not. He is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And this morning, I want to invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus, I'm not inviting you to see it like I see it. I said everything that I said today so I could invite you to stand confidently today on the faithfulness of God. That while your world may be crumbling around you, that you would know I am on solid ground. Because the God in whom I trust, the God in whom I hope, he is faithful. And he will be faithful. To the very end. And if you're here today, and you've never trusted Jesus to be your Savior and your Lord, I'm telling you, you need to do that. And you need to do that soon. You say, why, Pastor? You one of those guys that think Jesus is coming back soon? Yeah. And he may come today in rapture, but he may come for you today in death. That also is a certainty. And you need to be ready. So if you're here today and you've never given Christ your life, you have questions, concerns, doubts about that, as we sing in just a minute, I'll stand down here. I'll be here. If you say, hey, I, will you pray with me? I need to know Jesus today. Let's do that. And for those who know Jesus today, while everything around you may be shifting and falling apart before God, it's all falling together, would you stand today and know he's faithful? He will be faithful. So let's stand together. Holy Spirit, would you grip our hearts today? with the goodness and with the faithfulness of Jesus, would you encourage your people and would you call people who are not yet your people to be your people today by faith in Christ, in Jesus' name.